We now welcome you back to the Other Scenes Inventory Report. This is Inventory Report number two. Every episode of Spoken Word with Electronics, we delve into the past to report on the forgotten or deleted history of that era. This is done with a large box of material that is uh, gathered from around 1950 through 1970 that belonged to reporter John Wilcock. John died in 2018. It's the hope that this will go to a proper university or a library when I'm done cataloging all of it. But I also just don't want it to go on the shelf somewhere. You know, I would like for this material to be alive again because it's really interesting stuff. The material we're focusing on here for this segment, it's uh, John's wonderful international newspaper from the 60s. Other scenes. And full scans of all the items discussed here are available for download. And everything that I'm discussing is a visual item, so you probably want to look at the scans too. Especially if I say something like, wow, this looks really great. <laughs> look at the color at that. If you get that kind of prompt, you can find full scans of all those items for free at my website at www.ep.tc slash other scenes. You'll see previous other scenes inventory reports there as well. I often think of the other scenes inventory report as being a nighttime show. You know, you've gone through the day, kind of like the old political shows of the 60s or so, where the hard thinking shows commentary episodes before news got stupid. So tonight we will be discussing Other Scenes Issues, issue number two and issue number five. Both of those are from 1967. We also have an Other Scenes sex supplement, which reprinted sex ads during the peak of sex ads. That would be classified sex ads and Other Scenes sex supplement from 1973. I'll mention my own history writing two sex ads in 1994, and I'm referring to classified sex ads, you know, like uh, personals. And I'll tell you about the people who replied to mine. And I'm delighted to also include John's personal copy of Liberty Magazine from 1955, which if you've read any, uh, any part of John Wilcock, New York years, you will know that that was his famous interview with Marilyn Monroe. So that's pretty neat. Last uh, Other Scenes Inventory report mentioned the intention of opening up every piece of these with a reading from John's The Village Square. But for time constraints, no longer continuing that idea that it'll be here every single time. But I'll do one more, just because it's kind of funny. Here's perhaps the last Village Square column you'll ever hear on the Other Scenes Inventory report. It goes back to 1954. And John spent a column reprinting bathroom graffiti. The signs on the bathroom stalls, this is John Wilcock writing, are something to behold in New York City. And then he follows later saying, one sample includes Carol Loves Wally, to which some disillusioned Romeo has added, Misery Loves Company. <laughs> Now let's get off to this week's four items. You're listening to the Other Scenes Inventory Report, a special section of Spoken Word with Electronics. 
This is inventory report number two. Listen to that. It's a crazy amount of air conditioning happening right now. We're just going to go with it. Let's pretend that we are on a plane. <laughs> I can make it more like an overhead. Welcome to Sean Wilcock Airlines. This is your captain speaking. Archivist Ethan Persoff. You're going to see more issues there in your overhead compartment. Please be careful. In your compartment, you'll see four PDFs. Let's see, item number one, we have Other Scenes, issue number two. Other Scenes, issue number two is visually not too exciting. It's a yellow cover. You'll see a yellow cover with a collage on it. That's how you know you're looking at Other Scenes, number two. Look for the collage. Dated February 1967 and assembled and sent from Los Angeles, California. The date and location of each other's scenes is significant in that the paper was intended to sort of travel with John. And, you know, me, I've lived in four cities my entire life, so that would not be quite a gimmick or, or anything. But John was a very uh, successful travel writer. A lot of people actually didn't even know John, but they knew his books, like Mexico on $5 a day or Greece on $5 a day. Those are famous books from the 60s that uh, encouraged people just to leave America and travel around the world. And they would use these guidebooks as companions. And John was really candid in those things, sort of even talking about like hotels that might swindle you, things like that. So they weren't ad-supported guidebooks they were put out by um, Arthur Frommer, or Frommer, but John was allowed a lot of editorial freedom with those books, and so a lot of people might not have even known John, but they had some of their best vacations traveling with him in their pocket. And Other Scenes is sort of an extension of that, and so the idea would be that any place in the world that John was at would be intentionally a location for sending out a new issue. And it gets kind of comical and in uh, other scenes number five, which we'll also talk about in a moment with the subscription labels. <laughs> this issue is shipped out of Los Angeles and there's an interesting collage on the cover. I should say, if you're looking at that cover, you might be underwhelmed by it, particularly with the way that I've sold other scenes. You might be like, well, these are kind of boring looking issues. And I should say the design and appearance of other scenes improves a lot. Right now, the early issues look pretty rough. The logo, in particular, feels like a student might have drawn it in their notebook with ballpoint pen. And this will improve. In about a year, other scenes will rival Milton Glaser in terms of design. Milton Glaser was a famous graphic designer. In other scenes, ends up being just as cool looking. Just give it a little bit. These early issues seem to be more about establishing a sense of structure and voice. And I think just sort of setting up a tendency to make the damn thing. So this issue has a very funny letters column. Many readers, and these are uh, subscribers, people who sent their money in, found the premier issue of Other Scenes, which we did last uh, report. They found that premier issue to be offensive. Some have buyer's regret about purchasing a subscription. And they write that they disliked the largely lettered fuck hate and the crudely drawn Tijuana Bible art. John replies in the letters column, he prints their letters, but he also replies that, quote, dirty comics are funny, 
he replies. And on Fuck Hate, John mentions, quote, As long as people remain offended by words, we have a long way to go before we'll accept certain other things about our fellow human beings. Good thing we solved that word problem. Of note on issue number two, if you've read the John Wilcock comic, and uh, I will constantly be plugging it through the through the archive, pardon, but it's just also because there's references to pages. And in this instance, there's a good section on Aspen Magazine in the comic, which John contributed to working with Andy Warhol. If you're at that part in the comic, this is when Other Scenes number two came out, and Wilcock's piece from Aspen, titled The Underground, A Loosely Organized Collective, is reprinted here in full in issue number two. And it has some pretty damn good words on poets and being an artist and the trials of selling out. Try to avoid selling out as long as you can because it's always sticking at you like a knife if you make work. Kind of hard to go back from once you do it. The back page includes a poem by John Sinclair and he is an interesting historic figure sort of a provocative activist of the 60s. Did some pretty neat stuff, and he really liked marijuana. So he got a bunch of, many times he was busted by cops for marijuana. And this poem from 1966 is dedicated to Police Lieutenant Warner Stringfellow of the Detroit Narcotics Squad. It's a bit of an angry poem that John Sinclair writes, and it presents John Sinclair's activist spirit and his attitudes pretty well. And it predates worse troubles for John Sinclair. So in 1967, he got uh, busted for, I don't know what the poem says, maybe like a month or two, maybe six months in jail. A year later in 1968, Sinclair as a more provocative individual co-founded the anti-racist White Panther Party which you probably will recognize two of those words, Panther Party, the Black Panthers, and the White Panthers were intended to help the Black Panthers, so it wasn't like white versus black. And being the chairman of the White Panther Party certainly got John Sinclair a lot of attention from the FBI. In 1969, then, Sinclair would become world famous, world famous as an American political prisoner a lot of people referred to him as that, when out of a friendliness, he offered two rolled joints to an undercover policewoman. Two joints, by the way, are about a pencil of marijuana, if you were to stack a tiny little row of marijuana together. And he received a prison sentence for 10 years for possession. And uh, due in part to some protests, which included a song by John Lennon on Sinclair's behalf. It ain't fair. Sinclair was mercifully released in 1971, but just think about that, 1969, 1970, 1971, you know, losing those years of history in jail would suck. The poem in this issue of Other Scenes describes one of his previous marijuana arrests, and uh, it's got some spirit to it, interesting to read. 
Before you close issue number two, you will certainly not want to miss the book review section. And the lead title there in John's selection of books is, and this is the title, Wife Swapping, a complete eight-year survey of morals in North America. John's review of the book had me curious, wife swapping curious, although I really have no intention to swap wives. What trouble would that be? There's no way that I think uh, the social experiment of wife swapping has proven that, or, or just, you know, partner swapping has proven that both people, <laughs> one person gets really hurt in that, I think. Either the wife or the swapper. The swapped or the swapper. The swapped. Have you been swapped or do you swap? But I think it's very uncommon that in this uh, society that that is something that doesn't sort of damage a relationship. But anyway, interesting social experiment wife swapping reviewed in other scenes number two and i found a copy for sale of wife swapping on etsy and it's still there as of this recording maybe you can trade them something for it item number two we're at Other Scenes, Issue 5. This is a, a shift in format to newsprint, which is uh, nice. So it's a tabloid sheet that has been folded in half, printed on both sides. So four pages. April 1967. And in terms of content, now we're talking. This issue was written, printed, and published in New York City. And you can already sense a shift in tone from the relocation. Or really from John's return to New York from Los Angeles. That uh, loose-looking logo is still there on the cover, but it is nudged to the bottom. It'll be on the way out pretty soon. Funny uh, comedy moment here before we get into the big interesting component of this issue. I'll tell you in a moment, it's Hunter S. Thompson, but there is a pretty, pretty, pretty funny comedy moment on the front page. The front page of issue number five describes the burden that John is enduring and moving around constantly and still maintaining a sense of a publication as an organization. And <laughs> right in the middle of the page, he declares in all caps, no address changes. He writes, and I'm quoting, Dear readers, One thing I can't cope with is your address changes. I get them all the time, but I usually have to ignore them and trust that when you move, you give your post office a forwarding card. The reason that I ignore them is I can't cope. Dear readers, he explains why, though. It's a problem we no longer have, and uh, that's kind of worth considering here. Like right now, we can just buy a label maker at Office Depot or whatever, or just print out a bunch of self-adhesive sheets, or, you know, uh, digitally it's really easy. You just have like a printout, you know, you can take them down to Kinko's and chop up your, uh, your labels right there onto sticker paper, but... Here's his problem. 
One thing I cannot cope with is your address changes. The reason I can't cope is that the only set of subscription stencils, that's subscription stencils that I have, is in California. And before I left California, while there, I ran off sets of labels, which I dispatched to various parts of the world. I can't carry address labels. He cannot carry address labels with him everywhere he goes, and then sort through all the labels for corrections. There just isn't time, John says. So basically, the address that you set is stuck. <laughs> it was printed in uh, Los Angeles on a set of stencils that he can't edit or access. Just has copies. Doesn't even have the label maker. He adds, if you feel this is a sloppy way to run a business, you are right. But the fact is that Other Scenes is not a business. It is just me. From a uh, personal standpoint, I was thinking about the kinds of publications that I've, you know, since this is now the second, I guess I can say the kinds of publications that I, I like to digitize and bring up into the web. The Realist was a one-man operation. This archiving is a one-man operation and Other Scenes was a one-man, or one person, sorry, I don't mean to say man. But you know what I mean, a single individual, a single mammal individual, single mammal operation, and I, another mammal, am now endeavoring on my own. But I don't know if you really caught the imagery there. He has a big block of mailing labels. You know, he's dispatched these subscriber labels to various parts of the world. So they're just waiting for him. They were printed in California months ago, and there is no way to change them. And this is just the smallest detail of what it meant to make a publication in the 60s or 70s or 50s or really the 1800s or whatever. And the idea of managing those smallest details like that in a manual, non-computer way. I don't know, it's just something really insane to consider. Let alone typesetting, which we will certainly talk about in subsequent reports, the whole idea of page layout, because John and his wife Amber ended up being innovators. Amber had a service called AmberType, which typeset a bunch of radical publications. Steal this book by Abby Hoffman. AmberType that. Giving access to less wealthy people, because really if you wanted something typeset, that cost a lot of money at one point. But no computers there. I don't know why I'm uh, considering sort of just like ruminating on this, but the idea of just John having a big box of stickers, it's probably an adhesive, like you'd have to moisten the, uh, like a glued, uh, like a glued paper would have your stencil. And it's a scene I would have loved to include in the comic if we'd only had more time. Although the comic is quite comprehensive, but I'd imagine just a box of mailing labels waiting for him from town to town. And maybe there'd be a crisis. And it could be titled, John's Lost His Labels. But this actually had me curious about subscription stencils. That's what he referred to it as. And that was a term I'd never before encountered until I read just that little complaint of please, no new address changes from other scenes number five. 
and it took me down a little path. It was at first tough to find an image of an actual machine that you would type in the address information. But one presumes that once it's stenciled, because it's the type, the phrase that I kept on finding was typing in subscription stencils. I would find that in a couple examples. So it's probably a keyboard, some kind. And one presumes that once it was stenciled in, you could keep printing out multiple copies. But I also found that John wasn't alone in considering this process maddening, especially address corrections. From the 1963 issue of Amateur Radio, I found another editor, the editor of Amateur Radio, making a similar complaint. And here's a quote from that. Dear readers, now about those subscriptions. Oh, what a problem. Just a little over a year ago, the cutting and filing of subscription stencils began to be too much for us to handle without quite an investment in larger machinery. We spent weeks trying to solve the problem, says Amateur Radio. That was just from Amateur Radio, which, if you don't know the size of Amateur Radio as a publication, is only amateur in the title. It's a huge radio magazine from the 60s. And apparently a bunch of subscribers were not getting their copies. A bunch of subscribers were not getting their copies. Getting their copies. Their copies. And apparently a bunch of subscribers were not getting their copies. <laughs> so the solution Amateur Radio asked for people to verify was to send in their address if they were not receiving their copy, and Amateur Radio would reply with a printed out subscription stencil to verify. Is that insane? And the file keeping involved in the request would mean that you couldn't just call. It wouldn't be file keeping, it would be file finding or tracking a stencil down. Even if it was alphabetically sorted, that could take forever, you know? Just think about sorting through index cards. You can't do that on the phone. You have a magazine to finish. I mean, think about email or just like the suddenness of something like this. This was a mail-based verification task just to guarantee your copy of amateur radio that you might not be receiving. By this point, Regardless of my need right now to talk about other scenes, issue number five, which is a fascinating issue, I was determined, or perhaps led into a tangent, to find an example of stencil machinery. And I found a bunch of weird, heavy machines online just looking up stencil machinery. And I found some amazing ones with dials that clicked out a letter one by one. And the entire process looked extremely grueling. You know, it would literally make a stencil, like it would, it would shoot into a, uh, a heavy cardboard and knock out, you know, a hole of the letter. Kind of, I was thinking this is probably what a subscription stencil looks like because it resembles the inked on looking stencil that I have in old mailing labels. And what if you make a mistake on like the last line? Do you have to redo the whole stencil? You probably do. But then I found out what I think John might have used, and this is my guess. I think it might have been the Elliott Addressing Machine. And if you look that up, that's E-L-L-I-O-T-T. -T. That's two L's and two T's, Addressing Machine. 
the history of antique mailroom machines. The history of antique mailroom machines. The history of antique mailroom machines. So that is one problem we no longer have, something we learned from issue number five of other scenes. Subscription stencil machinery and sending your addresses to cities that you plan on visiting to produce your paper. Crazy, crazy, uh, crazy. But moving on, this issue of other scenes is a highly collected one. And the reason is there is a huge amount of interest in people who love the writing of Hunter S. Thompson. The writing of Hunter S. Thompson. I'm certainly one of those people that love the writing of Hunter S. Thompson. And for many people, that interest in Thompson begins mostly other than his Nation article and book Hell's Angels. For the most part, other than those two publication appearances, it's stuff that appeared in the late 1960s and then early 1970s with Rolling Stone. But Thompson appeared in a couple of publications in between those two. And one of his most famous ones is a mid-60s piece which appears in other scenes on page two of issue number five. And it's been reprinted a few times to be called The Ultimate Freelancer. It is a eulogy by Thompson for the reporter Lionel Olay. Olay is remembered now posthumously for his book, The Dark Corners of the Night. And in a lot of ways, the piece that Hunter S. Thompson writes in this issue of other scenes can be perceived of as a kind of eulogy to a mentor. And it's very, very wonderful. And if you're a Fear and Loathing fan, you'll recognize the character Lionel from the book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This full page piece from Thompson and other scenes hits all the great Hunter S. Thompson notes in terms of energy and strength and just sort of wild structure. There's an, an amazing thing when, when, when Hunter Thompson is on all, all cylinders, the way that he can just, and again, he's just writing that out of a typewriter. You know, I'm sure that if you write on a typewriter all the time, you become very nimble on it, but it still amazes me. He would have carbons, I believe, and underneath the letter that he was sending and, and save his carbons, and that's how his correspondence has been collected, is those carbons. But this piece that ultimately became referred to as the ultimate freelancer, which got reprinted in uh, The Great Shark Hunt and some other things, began as a letter to John Wilcock, and you actually see it also depicted in the John Wilcock comic, another reference. Hunter Thompson knocks on John's door, and the story on how that piece got made. But a really nice part of the Other Scenes archive right now is the inclusion early of Other Scenes number five. It's very, very cool. And we have a couple other Hunter S. Thompson pieces coming up, but I just wanted to get that one down. I won't even do it a disservice by quoting any part of it. Or really, you know, why not? Let's just try and see what we can do in terms of quoting Mr. Thompson. It is uh, the To the Editor page, and it has a picture, which it could very well be Hunter S. Thompson up there with a guy with a bunch of very powerful rings and uh, some medallions and other things. And it says, the image above, the name Hunter Thompson, 
doesn't, it's not Hunter S. Thompson or Dr. Thompson at that point. It is Hunter Thompson. When you wish to give a ring, OL4-4618. OL4-4618 is written on the image. And the opening line, if you read the comic page, you'll understand the context here because uh, John and Hunter Thompson hung out and smoked some pot in Los Angeles on his Hells Angels book tour. And it concluded with a request to write for her other scenes, which John was just about to get going. And so Hunter Thompson wrote. Originally, I think it was Dear John, but you asked me for an article on whatever I wanted to write about. And since you don't pay, I figure that gives me carte blanche. I started out tonight on an incoherent bitch about the record business. I was looking at the jacket copy of the Clues Project. I noticed that none of the musicians' names were mentioned anywhere on the album. But the producer's name was in huge script on the back, and underneath it were four or five other names. Punks and narcs and other 10 percenters who apparently have more leverage than the musicians who made the album and so managed to get their names on the record jacket. And it just sort of goes on, and there's some stuff about Lenny Bruce that's fantastic, and then it leads into the Lionel Olay piece. Ends with a wonderful rant on Warhol and Leary. It's great. Check out that. One thing that's kind of funny is John uh, sort of almost chronically is never given credit for what he, what he brings into culture. And the internet has this wrong, there's a lot. They will talk about, you'll find a lot of sites, a lot of Hunter S. Thompson tribute sites, quoting uh, the ultimate freelancer, even typesetting it. And nearly everyone you would think should know that this piece originated from other scenes. But John published it on other scenes, which was a part of the underground press syndicate, which he helped design which allows any other paper that's a part of the Underground Press Syndicate to reuse content. And so another paper, six months later, republished it. And this is completely permissible. It's how the UPS or the Underground Press Syndicate works. But people not knowing that, it confuses where this historic bit of gonzo writing, I'll just say that. I like to say gonzo writing. People say gonzo too often, but I like to say it right there. But historic piece of writing from Hunter S. Thompson originates. Nearly every place on the web says that it's from the publication The Distant Drummer, who republished it under UPS rules in November 1967. And what's funny is they actually opened it up with the same opening, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the you asked me to write an article on whatever I wanted to write. And since you don't pay, I figured that gives me carte blanche, but that's to John. So that's, a, that's kind of a funny thing. It's not too important, but that's a correction. It uh, is from Other Scenes, number five, and you have the entire issue here to download and enjoy. Regarding the photo, the possible photo of Hunter Thompson on that page, it could not be him. The neck doesn't seem to match, but perhaps it is. Uh, Thompson decorated himself in some cool outfits at the time. And with the words written over the photo, when you wish to give us a ring, OL4-4618, I wasn't going to try that number, that's seven digits, but I was curious if, ever, if anyone had ever tried calling OL4-4618 or 654-4618. Of course, there's an area code that's missing, but I just looked in the, uh, the number 
654-4618. And I'm sure the number has changed owners over the last 50 years, but humorously, it now belongs to a hedge fund or a money fund serving the Emerald Coast. That's Florida, by the way. When you are done with your bundle of adhesive labels that we've put together and navigated your Emerald Coast investments, you'll find issue five to be really tightly put together. New York works very nicely with John. The shift to a New York mood can be found in this optimistic rumination on page three, quoting other scenes, John writing, do you ever feel like there's some kind of psychic significance in this particular era in history when we're quite capable of blowing up whole countries and covering the entire earth with a pall of suffocating, all-embracing radioactivity that, at this particular time, is exactly when we are on the verge of being able to leave the world altogether and going out into space to colonize new planets? So that's from 1967, but it seems, you know, kind of perpetually or presently topical. Hey, you know, we can do anything to the Earth. Blow it up. Heat it up. Let's get us some Mars. Just inject a little atmosphere into it. And we are at time here. I've decided to set a 30-minute uh, timer for every other scene's inventory report. I know that I have two other articles or two other issues to share with you, the Liberty Magazine one and the other scene sex supplement, and those will be bumped to the next report next episode. This has been the Other Scenes Inventory Report, and we're mindful of your time. That's why we're only doing 30 minutes. Talk to you next week.